Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Dr. Joe Luciani. Joe has been a practicing clinical psychologist for more than 35 years. He's the internationally best-selling author of the self-coaching series of books and offers a self-coaching advice on his website and daily blog, selfcoaching.net. Thank you, uh, Dr. Luciani, for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you. So can you tell me a little bit about your background, what you do, uh, how you got interested in psychology and self-coaching? Well, uh, it goes, I guess, all the way back to my uh, adolescent years. Uh, I, I was an anxious young man. Um, and as I went into college, of course, uh, I, was, I was feeling kind of lost and uh, just curious about whether or not the anxiety that I was feeling, the stress I was feeling, <clears throat> and I would even say the mild depressiveness that I felt, I was curious to know if there were maybe some, some answers, if there was something I could do to change. So I, I naturally gravitated towards some study in psychology, and lo and behold, I started to get hooked into the idea that maybe suffering was a choice. So at the very young age of about 19, I think I started to realize that uh, it was up to me to find a way out of the woods. When I was younger, in fact, had you <clears throat> approached me and told me that I would feel the way I feel today, uh, I would have thought you were high. I never, I never would have believed it. Uh, I mean, I, I thought <clears throat> there was some change that could take place. But to be honest with you, I, I never realized that stripes can change to spots, uh, at least it is so in my case. So, so from that start, psychology became uh, a way of life for me, both uh, in my academics and also uh, in, in my life, just applying it to, to really trying to see a little bit further, uh, to try to expand my, my ability to, uh, to reach others. Um, and I've been in private practice, as you say, for over 35 years. And what happens in those 35 years is you begin to develop antenna you really start to sense things in people and you start to see things more clearly and more quickly. What used to take me months when I first started out in private practice uh, could take me minutes at this point. You just, you just develop a sense of human nature. Um, I became very impatient with traditional uh, analysis, which was my orientation. In fact, I, I had training analysis at the Jungian Institute for many, many years. But I, I became impatient. I wanted results. I'm a much more, uh, and I guess, uh, oriented towards uh, just you know problem solving, uh, an active kind of person. So I started to shift my gear from traditional dissecting of the past to uh, to problem solving. And this is really the the origins of self coaching. Is that I realized that uh, there just had to be a way to meld motivational, in, insightful kind of uh, psychology with uh, a, a more or less traditional behavioral cognitive approach. And, and actually, I want to go even deeper into this. How does you know, your coaching differ from traditional psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, some of your peers who are also psychologists, and even just other self-help methods? Well, essentially, uh, as I mentioned, it, it's a melding of uh, motivational coaching with psychology. Uh, I am aligned pretty closely to cognitive behavioral, which is really a way of just, just changing the way you interpret your world. 
uh, and working on those interpretations. But where, where self-coaching really differs in, in that uh, it really requires that, A, we're not really interested in the past, not per se. <clears throat> it's like a cigarette smoker. We don't need to know why you took the first cigarette. What are you going to do to break the habit? And uh, so self-coaching is a way, one, to keep someone really motivated and in the game. Oftentimes in therapy, uh, people become passive, waiting for the therapist to give that magical insight. And uh, they really are not engaged in the process as actively as they need to be, oftentimes working, waiting for the session each week to do their work rather than doing it 24-7. So I, I felt there needed to be a real coaching modality where someone needed to be incentivized and really, you know, really put on the carpet. You know, just as an athlete going into a game, the coach is, you know, ramping up and down the sidelines. Well, you've got to get in there and you've got to really put in uh, that effort. Someone with depression, for example, is is very prone to to really losing that energy and <clears throat> becoming somewhat, uh, I guess, passive or apathetic about the work they need to do. So I felt that there needed to be a very active participation in therapy. There needed to be encouragement, motivation, uh, and that's where it comes together in that given the tools, given the necessary tools and the necessary motivation and encouragement, uh, I think that what happens is that you, you really are able to propel someone to to really take their lives in hand and to really do something to change. You said a few key words there. You said encouragement, motivation, even the word incentivize. Can you talk about how you use these ideas or tools to help somebody achieve their goals? Well, essentially, um, motivation is contingent on belief and hope. Uh, if I can convince you that there is a legitimate path to follow that will yield what you're looking for, that in itself is motivating. What happens with depression and oftentimes with anxiety is there's a hopelessness. So one of the things that uh, motivation or at least therapeutic self-coaching motivation hinges on is to convince someone that their despair or their hopelessness is based on faulty perceptions, faulty interpretations. Once you get someone to see the simple truth, and that's, I guess we can get into that as we go on in this interview, but once we get into the simple truth that there is a cause and effect, there is a simple way to address problems and diffuse problems, and it's not mystical. You don't need to depend on a, a, a therapist, a guru, a shaman, or a, a shrink. You know, it's it's really not that complicated. So one of the things that's always been essential to me is to simplify the process of psychology rather than making it a science that's in the hands of a professional to put it in the hands of a person that's struggling and make that common sense approach available every day. Can you talk about some practical ways you might use this with your clients? Well, essentially what what I do is is I try to help them understand that, you know, it's the basis or the motor uh, for all struggle is insecurity. That's this is the the core. Now, uh, insecurity is is a relative term because we all have some degree of insecurity. No one grows up in a perfect world. No one has perfect parents. Uh, so, to some degree, we've suffered loss, illness, separations. We all have some degree of insecurity. And another word for insecurity, of course, is vulnerability. Human beings hate being out of control hate being vulnerable. In fact, I'd say it goes beyond hate. It's a, it's a loathing. It's almost instinctual. 
When I was in uh, high school biology, we learned that uh, organisms avoid pain and seek pleasure. I would contend that there's a second uh, principle, uh, and that's that organisms, including humans, uh, abhor loss of control. So what insecurity and vulnerability does to a growing child is it makes, makes them feel out of control to some extent. When we feel out of control, we instinctually try to do things that make us feel less vulnerable. It only makes sense, and it's, it's as I say, almost an instinctual desire to be in control. So we develop strategies, for example, worrying, ruminating, perfectionism, avoidance. We develop different strategies to protect ourselves from insecurity. So this is where the genesis of the problem now begins to escalate because we start to develop patterns, uh, worrisome patterns, patterns that will lead to anxiety, avoidance, patterns that will lead to depression. These become our patterns, our habits. And over time, these become very entrenched. So we wind up setting ourselves up for the struggles of a young uh, life, adolescence, beyond and into adult life. We set ourselves up by following these patterns, knee-jerk-like, as if these are natural parts of our personality. It doesn't occur to us, of course, that these are just habits, habits that have ensued in our developmental years. And that's, that is the, the essence of self-coaching, is to help someone understand that what their struggles are about are habits, habits of insecurity, and like all habits, habits are learned and habits can be broken. Once I convince you that what you're struggling, I don't care if it's a depression or an anxiety, if I convince you it's a habit, uh, I've got your attention because habits are fed and habits are starved. My job is to teach you to starve those habits. A lot of people become, and I see this all the time uh, in our coaching, they become contained within their habits. It gives them a limited lens that they see the world through. Like they can't, it's hard for them to see themselves beyond their habits. So you said that you convince people. How might you convince somebody that the strategies or sets of habits they've been using for 10, 20, 30 years, a lifetime are within their control? There's something that can be changed. Well, once, once you delve into a habit, uh, you help someone understand that the basic nature of habits is that they will persist if reinforced, if fed. And uh, you start to point out exactly what they're doing that feeds and propels a habit forward. It's like a pinwheel. You know those things you, they, they blow in the wind and they turn around. Well, if you blow on the pinwheel, it's going to keep spinning. Uh, and if you keep blowing on it, it's going to keep spinning. You know, you've got to realize that you're the one that's blowing and puffing the air onto that pinwheel and making it spin. So once you begin to realize very specifically the kinds of thoughts you're having, the kinds of reactions you're having that keep the habits uh, persisting, uh, uh, let's take, take worry, for example. Why do we worry? Well, we're, we're looking into the future and we're trying to say, well, what if this happens? What if that happens? We worry because we're trying to protect ourselves from things that may never happen. You see, so insecurity gets projected forward, and in order to feel more control, we, we try to start anticipating, well, what if this happens, what will I do, blah, blah, blah. So worry becomes a habit that gets reinforced almost daily. Once you start pointing out that there really is a choice, now every time you hand yourself over to needless worrisome thoughts, 
uh, you're reinforcing the habit. So the habit is, is really not something that's going to go away. It's only going to become part of life if, in fact, you don't realize that you have to cease and desist. You know, it's like Mark Twain who said, I've worried about many things in my life, most of which have never happened. So we're, we're putting ourselves into the future as if it's inevitable, and we're trying to deal with it in the present, which is almost an oxymoron because the, the future doesn't exist. But that's where we wind up. You know, depression winds up looking over our shoulder with regrets, uh, and anxiety looks forward to the future with fear and trepidation. So essentially, we're never in the present moment, but that's where the genesis of the reinforcement uh, takes place. In the present moment, you're either feeding or starving. And I need to get people to recognize that you know this is an active approach. You need to start observing your own thinking. For some people, this is a very alien concept because they're, they're just uh, their thinking is occurring on a kind of fluid level, just somewhat below consciousness. It's more reactive. But once you start to apply, you know, the, the spotlight of attention as to, and especially when you're feeling anxious or depressed, especially when you feel yourself stressed, you know, these, you want to go into your thoughts and, and, and really be able to assess what's going on. Now, observing the thoughts, if you're getting anxious or depressed, you'll probably notice that what you're doing is you're reinforcing some old controlling kind of tendencies. Uh, and when I say control, I have to just pause here to explain that I think control is what causes stress. Over control, I should say. There's good control. You wear a seatbelt in the car. You take vitamins. That's good control. We're not talking about that. We're talking about trying to control things that may never happen, trying to stay uh, absolutely safe in a world that is uh, quite challenging and can be at times unsafe. But we, we, we tend to become addicts to trying to protect ourselves from perceived danger, even in safe places. So it's the tendency to control through worry, rumination, avoidance, perfectionism. The tendency to control is what creates stress. And why does that happen? Because controlling life in this mode is really not natural. We have to expend energy to fret, to worry, to ruminate. We have to expend energy to avoid, to try not to mess up and be perfect. And it's the effortful way of living by trying to over-control life that stresses us. And stress, as we know, changes body chemistry, creates imbalances. So it's a mind-body problem. We ultimately bring ourselves to our knees. So, you know, in a sense, it's very, very important to recognize that, you, you know, we're, we need to be in the driver's seat, not a passive person in the back seat, just being dictated to by habits. Mm. Makes sense. And the other thing I, th I thought about as you were talking is they're not really productive efforts in the sense that they don't change your outcomes. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, we we become the the legacy of our own perceptions. Uh, you know what what we perceive if, if if pessimism rules your life, of course, then the outcome is is almost foredained. So it is very important, you know, to cultivate a, a perception toward life that encourages and enhances, you know, that's the, the self-coaching mode is, is to really incentivize. Um, and, it, you know, the opposite of, of just sitting back and, and focusing on symptoms, you know, that's a big problem with anxiety patients. They don't, you know, they, they really, their initial orientation is, you know, why am I so dizzy? Why do I keep, I can't, I'm hyperventilating. I, I just feel this depersonalized. And they're focused so intensely on their symptoms 
that they're they're really not recognizing that the symptoms are, are really not the problem. They're just the aftermath of the problem. The problem is that uh, the symptoms lead to a loss of control, which keeps that pinwheel spinning faster and faster. And you get hooked into, rather than diffusing the habit, you become part of the habit by indulging yourself in, in being you know, kind of panicked over your symptoms. So you become so immersed in the symptoms that you've lost all perspective and you know, you're at one with your problems. I, mean, I find this absolutely fascinating. I feel like you're absolutely right. Well, what are some more effective strategies if somebody wants to overcome something like worry or anxiety or some of the many issues that people who are listening to this podcast might have? Well, I guess, I guess to overcome uh, struggle, uh, you, really, you really need to recognize that, uh, that there are certain, as, as we've said, there are certain thoughts that feed and certain thoughts that starve. So the feeding process <clears throat> can be very subtle. Uh, but typically with a little scrutiny, you begin to realize that, as I say, when you become part of a problem, uh, anxiety depends on looking forward with the kind of uh, insecurity-based feeling that you can't handle what's coming your way. So you're trying to compensate all the time. Um, let's take perfectionism, for example. You know, most people are shocked when I say, you know, perfectionism isn't really about wanting to be perfect. It's really not wanting to screw up. You know, you just don't want to be put on the hot seat. You don't want people to be disappointed. You want to be applauded. So you work like a dog, you know, to just be perfect. But what you're doing is you're putting yourself in a in a, an imperfect world and you're demanding something that is ultimately beyond your grasp. So you're generating lots of stress. You're generating just lots of unrealistic expectations. But you become uh, an addict to your, your habit and, and your life becomes victimized by this pursuit. Uh, with anxiety in general, you become victimized by worry. You know, it's the what-ifs. We're, we're trying to see what's coming around that corner before it comes around the corner. The only reason we do that, and, and here's probably, I guess, the, the basic end game of self-coaching is all about self-trust. Without self-trust, the ability to be spontaneous in the moment, you have to rely on controlling strategies. Uh, and that's why the worrisome, anxious, ruminative person is is really uh, in bed with their controlling strategies because they don't have self-trust or sufficient self-trust. With self-trust, that's where you really have a wedge against you know the ongoing anxiety, depression. Let me give you a, a, just a quick example. <clears throat> if if you're standing outside the door and there's a party going on inside. Without self-trust, you're going to stand there with a little bit of social anxiety and you might be saying, well, who's going to be there and am I dressed properly and what if so-and-so comes up to me, how will I respond? So the, the person without self-trust is trying to really brace and rehearse for the experience to come. The person with self-trust may have similar uh, kind of uh, anticipations, but they open the door and walk inside and they allow themselves to react to what happens in the moment. The only way you can do that is if you have enough self-trust to believe in your own spontaneity to not have to be thoroughly rehearsed. So, so essentially self-trust is the ability to let life unfold. I call it reactive living, not proactively because that's where a lot of anxious people get into trouble. They, they live a proactive anticipatory life, but reactively. With trust, I go through life, something confronts me, I handle it. 
you know, we're all instinctual, intuitive survival machines. Once you get into a realm of self-trust and cultivate that trust, because it'll work for you if you start to exercise it. Um, and, you know, so uh, let me just, just hesitate one second to mention that I see self-trust as a muscle. And it atrophies when we rely on simply controlling life. We're not really feeding the self-trust muscle. We're feeding the controlling aspects of life. So at first, your, your own ability to trust and be intuitively and, and, and really competent in the moment may be a little rusty because the muscles atrophied. But as you begin to allow yourself to be more in the moment, more present, more reactive, that muscle develops and you become more and more uh, at least able to recognize that, that cognition is one thing, but intuition is another thing. The ability to be in the moment and spontaneous can be much more effective than simply trying to control life. So if somebody wants to develop self-trust, you talked about kind of this belief in, in yourself in the moment, and this is kind of a, not really a new concept. I mean, you see the idea of kind of living in the moment in all kinds of other facets of our society, spirituality, coaching, but how does somebody, is, are there some strategies that you recommend that can help somebody to start to trust themselves if they're not trusting themselves now? Well, the... In my books, I have a self-talk. It's a three-step process. First, you separate facts from fictions. You know, you have to, you have to go through the drill. Um, you know, you, like I said, there's no abracadabra. There's no magic button. It's like going to a gym. You're not going to have big uh, biceps unless you do the reps. So you you first catch yourself and you and you and you you know you kind of do a little self-scrutiny. What are the facts? What are the fictions? Emotions, by their very nature, are not factual. You know, uh, just because you feel something doesn't mean it's true. So you have to, you know, really ask yourself, what are the facts? What are the fictions? Something that may take place in the future, things you worry about, what if, what if, what if, these are always fictions because the future doesn't exist. So the first step is to separate facts from fictions. The second step is to catch yourself dig your heels in and put a stop to the thinking that just becomes a runaway train. Uh, it's like you, you start to, uh, with, with A and you're going to worry some B, worry thought C, D, E, and you're going down the alphabet. You've got to catch yourself and you've got to really recognize that you can say no. You can stop your thinking from just needlessly uh, uh, going through the alphabet from thought A to B to C to D. You may not be able to start the first, say, worrisome, insecure thought from popping into your head. Uh, but you can, you damn well can stop the second thought and the third and the fourth. There, there's no reason why you can't be training yourself to realize that you are part of the problem, that you're an accomplice to your own worry. We're not used to telling and being able to see that we are in control of our thoughts. We tend to be victimized by our thoughts because we, we just don't realize we have a choice. And the third step is letting go. Uh, once you put a stop to the train, the runaway train of thinking, that's where it's important to really turn away from and become more involved in life in, in that reactive way. Um, let, let me give you a, a, a kind of a metaphor. If, if you get in the car and you say to yourself, what if a squirrel runs in front of my car? Should I hit the brake? Should I turn the wheel? So, so now you're all caught up in congested thinking. What, what should you do if this happens? So now you're stressed. You're driving along. You're tense. You're gripping the wheel tightly. What if that squirrel runs in front of you? 
a more reactive way to live is to get in the car, uh, roll down the window, turn on the radio, and risk, and that's a very important word, risk trusting that if a squirrel were to run in front of the car, in that moment, you would react instinctively, intuitively. So again, uh, you know, I come back to trying to encourage people that they have to develop trust as a muscle. You're not going to develop trust if you're trying to always protect yourself from life. So uh, yes, that happens in the moment because it can't happen in the past or the future. That's the only place it can happen for you to make these strides. It's like going to the gym. You're not going to develop biceps tomorrow. You're going to develop them today at the gym. So it is very important that you begin to recognize that in the moment, uh, building trust is the end game of all anxiety and depression. You could look at anxiety and depression and you see that it is a loss of self-trust. Carl Jung might have said it's a loss of soul. I would call it a loss of trust. Uh, we are then in a hopeless situation, feeling vulnerable and out of control, and we just keep relying more and more on controlling strategies, which are putting a stranglehold, a chokehold on us. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchrisma.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. There's kind of a close correlation between trust and the idea of choice. I know you also talk a lot about choice. Can you elaborate on kind of the importance of choice in one's life and how listeners can coach, motivate, empower themselves to choose to have happiness or a happy life? Mm -hmm. Well, the one thing always is to realize that in life, there's always choice. Uh, to think otherwise is a myth. Now, someone might say to you, "Well, if I'm if I'm stuck in traffic and I get anxious, uh, yeah, I didn't I didn't choose to be in traffic." Well, you see, it's never life circumstances that brings us to our knees. It's our interpretation and our reaction. Life is not what sh what what holds us back, and life is not what puts us you know in that in that ditch. It's our reaction and, and the way we allow ourselves to uh, respond. So the first, the first thing you need to realize is that you have a choice. So if you're going to allow yourself to get upset, so if someone says, uh, she made me feel blah, blah, blah. Not true. You allowed this person to get under your skin. See, once you start becoming uh, more in tune with the fact that you're not impotent, that you're not a victim. You know, by definition, a victim is someone who is powerless. 
you are never powerless. If you believe yourself to be powerless, that's a myth. And if you're attached to that myth, then you will indeed become powerless. But this is your doing. So it is important to realize that the choice that we have in life or the options that we have in life are always there. We just may not uh, accept or embrace them. But uh, you, you cannot allow yourself to be deluded into thinking that you're a victim, uh, whether it's just let's just take a, a life that's off off the rails and just not happening. It's very, very common to feel victimized by life and to feel like, oh, nothing ever works for me and that kind of thing. Um, you know, that's because we have faulty expectations that, that life has to be only the way we want it to be. And then when it doesn't pan out that way, we tend to lose faith and trust. And we start to capitulate to the dark side of our own thinking, feeling victimized. Um, with you know, with a, 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 the right kind of optimism, uh, one begins to realize that uh, you know, life is a matter of uh, consistency and effort over time. Uh, we make our luck, we make our future, we make our destiny. But you have to accept that there is choice. When, when and if you abdicate that responsibility and start feeling victimized, then, of course, you get what you deserve. And I, I'm, I'm not at all hesitant to, to let someone know, hey, if you want to go on continuing this kind of worrisome thinking, you will get what you deserve. And if you come in here anxious, uh, you deserve it. Now, what are you doing to stop that? You know, I really, you know, w when someone is capable of hearing that kind of intervention. Not everyone comes in. Some people are in a delicate position. You don't want to blow them out of the office, obviously. But when someone starts to progress and they start to make headway, you know, it's just like a coach who takes a fearful athlete and just says, you know, shape up, get in the game, let's go. So you need to realize that you are never powerless. And if you feel you're powerless, you know, that is in fact just a myth perpetrated by your own insecurities. So, what does somebody do if, let's say that they have this thought that they, they feel like they're powerless or in certain moments they're incredibly worrisome and they're attempting to kind of control those thoughts and they feel like they're unable to control those thoughts. Is this a, a losing strategy? Is there another strategy that they could use to guide themselves emotionally, mentally out of this thought pattern? Uh, let me see if I understand your question. That if someone is if someone is caught up in kind of a spiral of negativity, would you say? Yeah, that, I mean that, that's great. I'll use an example. Like I, I've coached guys and take them out into the single scene, and I tell them to approach a girl, for example. And I, I can think of one guy that I was coaching, and if he wasn't attracted to a girl, he would say, "I, I won't approach her because I'm not attracted to her." And I'm like, "It doesn't matter. We're just like working on kind of socializing, meeting people." And then if he was attracted to a, a girl, he would say, "I can't approach her." because I'm too attracted to her. <laughs> and so that led, led me with limited options. And, uh, but there's, there's lots of kind of different scenarios. That's just kind of one of the first ones that, that popped into my mind because I know men when they're attracted to women and being reticent to approach them because they're, they're nervous for usually because they're scared of rejection, but they, they do different things. I've had guys who freeze up. I've had guys run out of the room <laughs> um, and I had to chase them down. I've had guys run so fast. I couldn't chase them down and I'm pretty quick. But uh, when somebody falls into that pattern, I mean, it's a specific circumstance, but it can be anything really like a negative mental spiral and they're trying to control their thoughts. They can't control their thoughts. Yeah, let me let me jump in there. You know, th th that's that's an important point is that once thoughts get away from us, 
um, you know, oftentimes, you know, it's the precursor to almost a panic attack. And, and once you're involved in, in a panicky situation, more so than not, uh, you're not going to be able to break that train of thoughts because now your, your physiology is involved. You've got adrenaline coursing through your, your bloodstream. You've got cortisol, all these stress chemicals. So oftentimes when you get into a panicky mode, you just have to ride it out. The key is, is to really work on the, uh, you know, the, the preceding thoughts, uh, setting yourself up for that panic, etc. Now, the way to do that is to realize, of course, that insecurity is steering the ship. You're, you're going into a situation without enough self-trust. So, so essentially, you, you really have to recognize, going back to what we're talking about, of building a kind of trusting, uh, almost optimistic, trustful mode. Uh, you're not going to do that by trying to go in there and be someone you're not. But on the other hand, if you don't have adequate self-trust, you know, then it is a matter of you know, getting some reps in, getting some confidence going. Um, but it does help to realize that uh, you don't, you know, you do have a choice. You can succumb to uh, insecurities tug, which is saying, oh, I can't do that, or, or she's too hot, and I better not approach her. You know, you could succumb to that, and again, allow yourself to be victimized, or you could, you could really just recognize here's an opportunity to really, you know, kick the can forward. And you go up and, and you, you say what you need to say and rejection or acceptance, whatever, but you've made yourself, you know, get a very valuable rep in there. You've realized that by approaching a girl and saying something, the world didn't end. So, you know, that would be a very valuable step forward. The key is to not expect a victory all the time. The key is not to try to control life. The key is to just try to build the confidence by exposure and desensitization. So it's it's really very important to realize that, you know, you can have that confidence, but you can't have it by just wishing for it. You're not going to become a confident person by sitting at home reading books. You're going to become a confident person by putting yourself on the line and risking trust, risking being who you are. The more natural you are, the better this will play out for you. The more in your head you are, the more this this is going to play against you. In our coaching, we we'll often talk about perception versus experience. Your perceptions will shape your experience, and your experience will have a dramatic impact on your perception. And we've talked a lot about perceptions here. And you started to mention getting reps in, like alluding to kind of your CBT work. Can you talk a little bit about how experience and getting those reps in affects a person's thinking, feeling, their ability to achieve a better outcome? Well, our whole life uh, is is based on perceptions that are built over time. Of course, uh, going back to what we first talked about, you know, insecurity sets the stage. So uh, a person develops faulty perceptions uh, based on their insecurities. Um, you know, I'm working with with a, a, a woman right now. She's a young lady, and you know, essentially, she was uh, really uh, so introverted and shy and overprotected as a child that she never developed any social skills. She just receded, 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 and now, as an adult, of course, she she really has no capacity for for really uh, being in today's world in a very effective way. So for her, it feels very alien to even the concept of confidence seems very alien because it's, it's never been something that she's known. It's never been something that she's felt. So she, she really needs the tools to really go forward. Now, with someone like that, I say, look, you, you've got to find 
experiences that are first within the realm of possibility for you, innocuous situations, situations with acquaintances, people at work, family. You know, you don't really want to walk into a club the first time and, and, and just, just try to, you know, uh, work it out. What you want to do is you want to try to be more spontaneous. Now, being spontaneous is a way to develop the trust muscle, perhaps better than any other method. We, we tend to be rehearsing in our head as we're talking. It's kind of one foot in, one foot out kind of living. And once you separate yourself that way, you're, you, let's, let's say you, for example, Chris, are in a, in, in a club and you meet a, a woman and part of you is saying, okay, now I want to make sure I come across a certain way. And the other part of you is talking to her simultaneously and you're trying to figure out what your next response is going to be and you're still carrying on this conversation waiting for an opportunity to express the new car you just bought or whatever it is. Uh, so it's a one foot out, one foot in kind of living that that the insecurity and the over control wants us to do to be safe. But the more you can risk just being spontaneous, uh, the more you can risk not rehearsing, but just reacting. And, and as I said, even with this young lady I'm working with, you know, I have her even with her brother and her family, you know, uh, to, to watch what happens when she's in a comfortable situation. Because in a comfortable situation, she realizes, yeah, it's, it just comes out of me. I'm not thinking. Of course not, because you're feeling safe. You're feeling secure. But see, that's the prototype I want her to tie into. And we all have safe experiences, safe people in our life. What you need to do is you need to use those as learning experiences where you recognize that how you react to a safe person is spontaneous, it's, it's reactive, it's effective, it expresses you adequately, and to start to see the carryover that that's the me that needs to evolve in another situation. And the only way that's going to happen, A, is by continuing to be more aware of that spontaneous nature that, that is you, and B, to develop some confidence and some skills through, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a program of just, you know, baby steps and, you know, just trying to get some, uh, some positive experiences under your belt. But I, I think I would have to say from a self-coaching perspective, the first thing is to help somebody realize their own spontaneity. Once you see it, once you realize that, yeah, this works pretty good in this relaxed situation, you see how effective it is, that's encouraging. That's motivating. So you have a kind of incentive to go forward and to really start to risk trust. Now, if you could take it a step or two further and meet that person for the first time and just be determined to see what happens, to let it unfold. And if you lose, you lose. See, you can't be in any relationship expecting to win because the, then you, you raise the bar to such a level that you have to be somewhat rehearsed in your head. You have to be willing to lose in order to win. And if you're insisting on never losing, well, God bless. <laughs> so much great stuff here. It's directly applicable to a lot of the listeners. One thing I've learned through coaching and doing this for a while now is that we tend to learn, for example, courtship or even social skills through a combination of observation and trial and error. And sometimes those experiences don't serve us well, or sometimes we just don't really have the experiences, as you said. So there's guys that are listening to this and they've never kissed a girl or they don't, they've never been in a relationship or maybe they're not even uh, comfortable in social situations at all. And uh, so they have to develop these base skills um, and even this idea of spontaneity, meaning, I mean, the way I'm interpreting it is, is like essentially being in the moment, not trying to pre-plan uh, what you're going to do, just 
as you said, react is so important. One of the, my favorite things I've ever heard somebody say on a podcast, uh, I asked him, how do you keep your conversations go? Because your conversations seem like they just kind of last forever. And he goes, um, yeah, I have a strategy. I just, I try not to be inhibited. <laughs> and, and I said, well, what, what happens if you say something stupid? He goes, I just don't worry about it. <laughs> Because, you know, and that's, that's essentially, you know, that's essentially the bottom line. I remember when I did my first radio interview, my first book came out uh, just just around 2000, maybe even a little before. And uh, and I had a whole array of notes in front of me, you know, because what if he asked this? What if he asked that? And it was a new modality for me. And I wasn't even following my own advice. So I, I was I was really departing from what I knew to be better. Uh, and that first interview was a disaster. I mean, a disaster. Um, and and I, I walked away from that feeling really bummed out because I realized I really blew it. And and I fortunately recognized that I had abandoned, you know, my, my self-trust. You know, it's like uh, Dante entering hell, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. And and I, uh, you know, so I, I really went forward and, uh, you know, decided no more notes. And it's it's like even our, our talk today. I know I'm, you know, I'm not, you know, the most prolific and profound guy in the world. But, you know, there's there are no notes in front of me. This is me. And whatever I say, uh, I, I don't know where I'm going with this. And I don't know how I'm going to answer your question, which is an interesting kind of thing. You ask me a question or you've asked me questions today. And um, I don't know where the answers are going. You see, that's trust. That's self-trust. Uh, I just start responding. Now, where that comes from in us, it would be the guy that meets the girl. You know, you don't know where the conversation's going if you have trust. It just goes. Uh, and again, check it out with someone you're really relaxed with. You know, everyone can can experience this by going to someone you're relaxed with. And after the conversation kind of peters out, ask yourself, wow, you know, how did it how did it just evolve like that? You know, well, it just happens. There's something in you that is spontaneous. Of course, there's a part of our, our cognition where we, we tend to override sometimes and, and compete with that spontaneity. That's what insecurity does. Insecurity will override that spontaneity and start putting up red flags. What if she says no? What if she's the... So once we start throwing the red flags in the way, we move away from our spontaneous center, wherever that is located in our brain, and we start to get into the controlling mode, which is I need to protect myself in case this, this, and this. So, uh, so I really think there, there, you know, there is something very vital about risking trust. And I, I use the word risk because it feels risky at first. Ultimately, it's not risky, but it, it will feel risky. So I encourage any listener to recognize, yeah, you're not going to break through and, and develop that trust muscle without some trepidation. It's going to feel a little risky. Okay, so what? Do it. You know, you know the thing is that you, you have to have handle some discomfort to go forward. Everyone wants a free lunch. Everyone wants to be cured and healed and abracadabra and all of that. Uh, my, my feeling is, okay, that's, that's nice. Now get over it. The real life, the real world, you're going to have to handle some discomfort if you're going to break habits. Whether you're a coffee drinker, a cigarette smoker, if you're breaking a habit, you're going to go through a period of discomfort. Uh, in order to get to the next plane, in order to get to the liberated place in your life, you're going to have to risk going into areas where you're a bit uncomfortable. But like I say, so what? Don't give in to the fear. Don't give in to that part of you that wants to run in the opposite direction. The hell with that. 
Get out there, put yourself on the line, handle that a bit of distrust, and walk away from it recognizing this was a good repetition. And you don't have to win for it to be a good repetition. You win by allowing yourself to risk trusting, by risk being more spontaneous. That's a win-win situation. You talked a little bit about external circumstances. What are some other things that the listeners can do to change their interpretation of external circumstances to help support them uh, towards the goal as opposed to cause them to spiral down into depression or some of these like negative feelings or emotions? Well, essentially, um, again, the, the world, you know, from a more of a Zen place, the world is neither good nor bad, black or white. It just is. Uh, it's our interpretations that make it that way. I mean, you could have 10 people that get an IRS tax audit and uh, eight of them will, you know, be wringing their hands and taking Valium and uh, one of them, uh, you know, just, just may uh, go into a complete panic attack and, and the 10th the person may not even care either way. It's not, the, it's not the tax audit that dictates how you react. It's the person and, and, and the circumstances. We always have a choice in terms of our reaction to circumstances. An important thing is to realize that uh, optimism and pessimism are both in error because they both look into the future. An optimist looks into the future and thinks of, uh, you know, glass half full outcomes and the pessimist the opposite. Both uh, are, of course, dealing with an, uh, the fictions of the future. However, uh, and there is a caveat, the optimist lives a very different life than the pessimist. So one of the things I would suggest is that you, you do have a choice to live in the present in an optimistic fashion. Uh, to live in an optimistic fashion, you live with hope and belief uh, that, yes, uh, whoever you are and whatever you are is something that is changeable. Something if, if something is not working out, uh, you know, you, you, aren't, uh, you aren't in a position where you're ever helpless and powerless to the person you've become. This is, you know, it's, it, we tend to look at ourselves as a kind of a snapshot that, oh, this is who I am. Uh, it's more like a streaming video. Uh, you're never really one frozen moment. You're always streaming into something else or adhering to who you are. But nevertheless, uh, life is an unfolding. So you, you need to approach life and your interpretation of life and your expectations in a way that ultimately puts you in a position to reap the benefits of a successful life. Um, and again, if, if, one, if one says uh, or sets themselves up to be too perfectionistic, to never fail, to, to not be able to navigate around the potholes, uh, you're going to keep winding up retreating from life just because you're going to defeat yourself. I always tell people, look, if you can't get in the front door, you know, there's a side door, there's a back door, there's a cellar door, and if that doesn't work, go through the window. But there are always options. The optimist really gives themselves the benefit of being able to endure over time. And, you know, that's, that endurance over time is what creates luck. Uh, no one has perfect luck. Uh, everyone, you know, has setbacks. But, you know, the successful person is someone who, who really just plows through the, the nuances, the potholes, and gets to the point where good things begin to happen and cluster. And the more successful people, in my estimation, I, I truly believe that once you start to live according to your own script, your own nature, your own confidence and trust, 
Now, I, I know this sounds out there and it sounds new age, but I have seen time and time again that someone who goes from negative to positive, their luck seems to change. I mean, good things just seem to, it's almost as if, and I, again, I apologize for sounding new age, but it's like the universe just seems to applaud people who start to get in sync with themselves and their lives. Never could explain it. Don't even want to try to. It just seems, it seems to be a phenomena that I do see. I think you're absolutely right. And I'm not going to try to explain it, but there are certain things that we tend to find what we're looking for. Yeah, you know, it's it's like we, we, you know, from a behavioral standpoint, obviously, if you start to become that positive person, you know, you're going to send out some positive vibes. People are going to see that, sense that, feel that and respond to you differently than if you got a, a hangdog kind of face and walking through life grumbling. So, you you know, you get what you deserve again. You know, we, we are behind the wheel and whether we turn left or right, that's up to us. Now, this has been absolutely incredible. I'm about over on time, so I'm going to have to wrap this up in a second. Any kind of last ideas, thoughts, perspectives, words of wisdom for the people who are listening to this? Yeah, I guess I'll give you the one thing I find myself saying to my clients over and over and over again. And it's from AA, the adage, let go, let God. Two things. You need to let go of the need to adhere to insecurity and control. And by letting God, you can put a secular spin on this to just let go to the spontaneity within yourself. Uh, there is something bigger than you, than your ego, than your consciousness. Uh, to let go to that, to trust that, uh, that's the key. Um, I've, like I, I mentioned to you earlier, uh, I've been in this job for 37 years. Um, I'm very proud of where I've wound up emotionally compared to where I started out. And the key is to really find a way to let go, let God. Um, and again, it, it can be a secular interpretation. I, I have come to trust me and my life has been a testimony to the fact that that, that does seem to work. Uh, I work very hard at getting people to accept that notion. And when they do, uh, it does make all the difference in the world. One of the things that came to mind, and this is kind of just a silly analogy, is when you're driving a car and you're constantly looking in the rear, rear view mirror, you're bound to crash into something. And uh, <laughs> so kind of keep your keep your head on the road and, and just kind of react to things as they come. But Dr. Luciano, this has been absolutely awesome. Um, I, I think your perspectives are incredible. And if you're listening, you want to learn more about Dr. Luciani, um, his coaching, the different things that he does, his books, I'm going to post some descriptions on the Craft Charisma website and within the description of this podcast so you can get access to him more easily. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You're quite welcome. I appreciate the opportunity. It's dating coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, Go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.